How's your tattoo feeling today, James? It kind of hurts, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com newrelic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. CodeClimate's new security monitor alerts you immediately when vulnerabilities are introduced into your Rails app. Sleep better knowing that your data is protected. Try it free at rubyrogues.com slash codeclimber. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 121 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Avdi Grimm. Hello. Josh Susser. Uh, good morning. Katrina Owen. Hello. James Edward Gray. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, Adam Keys. Hello there. So you've been on the show before, Adam. Do you want to introduce yourself anyway? Sure. Uh, I'm Adam. I'm from Texas. I currently work at Living Social and work on uh, Sifter app on the side. And I've been doing, uh, I've only been a consultant for like four months of my life. So there. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It was a discovery process. I learned that I I really, I, I liked just working on a product more than doing all the other things that consulting work in, entails. That's kind of funny, actually. I, I was wondering if you were going to say it was the worst four months of your life. But for me, I think it's almost backwards. Like, I I love the constantly seeing new things and, and stuff like that, so I never feel like I'm bored and stuff. Yeah. Well, well, hey, hey, maybe we can start with a definition. So, like, what is a consultant? What Wait, is a consultant? Yes. Yeah, what do, you, what do you mean by consultant? It can mean a lot of things. You know, Sherlock Holmes was a consulting detective. And, <laughs> and, and, of, and of course, when you compare that to the Enterprise Scotland Yard, you could see who was the more effective at getting the job done. Yeah, but let's face it, Sherlock Holmes was lame compared to Moriarty, who was basically a consulting bad guy. I mean, that's so much cooler. <laughs> okay, fair point. Uh, but, but Adam, how, what do you mean when you say consultant? So a consultant to me, having only been a consultant for a few months, is um, someone who's moving between projects somewhat regularly and uh, usually with a, a smaller scope of work to do and often is brought in based on you know, their previous work, what they're known for, and kind of sometimes with a scope that like they're there to uh, rub off on the people around, you know, at the place where they're consulting. So some examples of you you can consult freelance, but there are also companies who basically provide teams of consultants, such as ThoughtBot, Pivotal Labs, HashRocket. Yeah, when I started thinking about, like, trying to break this down in my head, like the, you know, working on products versus doing consulting work, it occurred to me that there's kind of, there's build shops like ThoughtBot, like, Pivotal, etc., and then there's pe- and then there's you know two or three person outfits that are closer to consulting and uh, you know might not even write code sometimes might just come in and say your code's great keep going or your code's terrible you need to change these things. 
So is there a distinction between a consultant and a contractor? Are we making that distinction? I am actually probably not a great person to make that distinction because I, like I said, I've only done it for five months. I would say that contractor is a wider set of which consultants are a part of. I think they're usually used synonymously in our segment of the industry. Yeah, yeah mostly. It, it seems like the only real distinctions that get made is if you had call in like an agile consultant who's coming to help you with your process or your team as opposed to a contractor who's going to come in and actually bang bang out some code. Yeah, as, as far as I can tell, contractors are those people who tear up your dining room floor and then don't show up for work for two weeks. Have you met my father-in-law? I swear you're talking about the same person. <laughs> So, Adam, what you're saying is there's differences between these people that do consulting work, uh, largely us rogues, and people who do uh, these other kinds of work that you're talking about, like product work and stuff, right? Yeah, th- there's a, a difference in perspective and goals uh, when you're working on a contract versus uh, when you're working on a product or set of products, not so much on the long term, but until you start working on another set of products, you know, a more open-ended uh, scope, time scope. So um, what are some of the main main differences? So I think the crux of the biscuit is that with product work, there's always more to do. There's always something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be improved, uh, a report that needs being that needs to be written and with consulting work it's kind of the scope is smaller and a lot of the goals i think are more focused around can we get paid like can adam keys incorporated uh invoice this guy now that i've written this amount of software does that make sense yeah it 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 sounds like you're talking about the the difference between uh are you uh writing to make the product great in the long run or are you writing to solve the immediate problem that's in front of you? Which is cash flow. Uh, good <laughs> yeah. point. That, I mean, yes, that, yes that's a really no. good point. Like a consultant is a business and a product person is not so much a business. And so, uh, like I said, like I didn't like thinking about, I didn't like having to do all the hustle stuff of promoting myself, nailing down contracts, meeting people, scaring up new business. And that's all business stuff. Whereas when I'm doing product work, I only have to think about the product. I might think about how the product fits in the business, but I don't have to think so much about sales, marketing, stuff like that. Yeah. That, that middle ground of working for a consulting firm, though, uh, it is, I think, in a lot of ways, the best of both worlds there. You, you, you know, when I worked for Pivotal, I never had to deal with the, the business acquisition, you, you know, you're bringing in clients, negotiating contracts, dealing with lawyers, any of that stuff. I just would, you know, show up at work one day and there'd be a new project for me to work on and I'd sit down and we'd, you know, start writing code. I, I want to jump in here though, because everybody kind of has a different thing that they really enjoy about whatever it is that they do. So Adam was pointing out that he really didn't enjoy a lot of the marketing and uh, business running things. And it's it's really interesting to, to talk to him about that because I kind of do as far as the marketing goes. Now, doing my books, yeah, I would. Th- there are things I would much rather do. But um, for the most part, running the business is an interesting challenge in the same way for me, at least, that writing code is. And so I, I think it really depends on what you want to get out of your your job. 
and whether or not you want to own it as to whether one, the other, or, you know, something in the middle makes sense. Black. Can I just say black? Which black? Second black what? <laughs> I hate that business stuff. Yuck. <laughs> so does someone handle it for you? No, I do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel qualified in saying I hate it. But um, the cool thing is, like, I, I guess I've just gotten to the point where it's it's not much of a hassle anymore. I, you know, I, I, it's fairly easy for me to get clients now. And, and uh, I, I guess I just have enough experience and word of mouth. And I get I get much longer contracts these days. So I, I work on bigger things for longer periods of time. Yeah. One other thing I want to talk about is the point that you made about um, making the product better versus trying to get paid. And to be perfectly honest, yes, they are two different problems, but I found that it's much easier to stay in business if you are trying to make the product as good as you can. (laughs) Okay, good point. (laughs) Because uh, the client is more likely to engage you for longer, and the other reason is is you're more likely to get referrals if you do the best you can. Okay, so so Katrina, you know, had a good point that as a consultant, you want to get paid, and that's really the problem that you're dealing with most of the time. But the point the point that I was trying to make is that the technical challenges that are in front of you as a consultant are very often more short term focused than you know someone who is a product owner. You know, you know, they're they're going to be at a company working on a on a a product for you know two, three, four years you know, or more sometimes. And I think that that gives you a different outlook on how you write code. That's, and, that's true. It's, yeah, they're yeah, also, I mean, a, they're also yeah, usually a, lot a little of, more specialized. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Special, no, but, but I mean, there's like a lot of stories. It's like one of the things that consultants are infamous for is coming in and writing code and, and just like banging something out and then riding off into the sunset and leaving a pile of unmaintainable code. <laughs> I've uh, seen this. It's true. <laughs> we all know that movie. <laughs> well, we've 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 all been the sequel to that movie where they yes. hired you to come in and maintain the unmaintainable code. We don't know what this does. We don't know how to deal with it. We need somebody to come in and make sense of it. Yeah. I think the distinction is that or to me is that when you're working as a product person, it might it, you might have short-term uh forces that make you put a thermal exhaust port somewhere where a snub fighter can shoot at it. But you probably... It's a very bad idea, by the way. <laughs> There's a really great documentary about that. Um, yeah, yeah but, but you can just set up a bunch of blaster turrets to you know, provide a impenetrable defense, and then it's not a problem. Right, and you send your own snub fighters in to pick them off if, if all else fails, right? So what we're talking about is technical debt. Right, well, so on the product. When you're a consultant, someone just like, Fix the problem. The reactor is too hot. Put a thermal port on the outside and we'll put some guns around it. When you're a product person, A, you can be, you have a, you can take a longer term vision and work that person over and be like, yo, we can do this, but it's really a bad idea. Uh, and do that, you know, once a week, uh, for five, six weeks until they give in. Whereas with a, my take on consulting was that like, you had to, the tightrope to walk on that was a lot trickier. Because you you know you're you're walking you're like I want to get paid, but I also want to tell this guy it's a terrible idea. So that's an interesting point you just made there. There's like I've worked with lots of different consultants, and actually some that I think are really good are actually 
the ones who do go back to uh, them and say, you know, you don't want to do that because, and here's a better idea that gets you 80% of what you want, you know, with way less energy or whatever. And I actually am particularly bad at this, not because I'm looking at the, the money or anything like that, but because I hear somebody say, let's build a thermal exhaust port. And I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. I want to do that. Like a technical challenge, just that I, I have no idea how we're going to do that, but I so want to try it, you know? And so I don't think to analyze, well, is this a good idea? Should we put this in here? And I think that makes me not as good at some of those things as, as other people who do go back and go, ah, you really don't want to do this. So I guess my question to you is, are we sure that, is the definition of a consultant. Are we sure that the consultant who doesn't push back, like the product guys would push back, doesn't that make a better consultant? Yeah, I, t- I totally think that makes, I mean, that makes a better developer for sure. It, it just seemed to me when I, it, when I was doing it that uh, you had to pick your battles even more wisely, at least the first one, to figure out like if this is a thing that you're welcome to do or not institutionally. I, I talk about this stuff every week <laughs> on another show. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and there's something about this conversation that is just driving me up the wall. And, and I really want to make the distinction between good consultants and bad consultants, because the good consultants are the ones that are going to go in. They're going to do the job. They're going to do it right. They're going to give the, the customer the most value for their money. And, Ultimately, uh, the nice thing is, is a you can pick clients most of the time anyway, unless you're absolutely desperate, which is a bad place to be. But um, you can pick clients that are going to listen to you. They're going to follow your expertise and you're going to save them more than they spend on you. And the other thing is, is a good consultant really understands the fact that they have to be looking toward the next contract, not the current contract. So the current contract is a means to an end. It is a means to get paid, and it is a means to get referrals for your next contract. So as long as you're doing a terrific job for them, they will pay you. And as long as you're doing a terrific job for them, then they will give you referrals. And if you if you break either of those rules, then you are basically aiming to have to scramble for a contract, and that's a place you really don't want to go. And so it, it really depends. There's a wide range of contractors. I mean, there are guys that that do rails work for 40 bucks an hour and they do a crappy job. It takes them 10 times as long as the guy that, that does it for a hundred dollars an hour. And you know, the, the, these are the kinds of people that we're talking about here. They're so strapped for cash that all, that's all they worry about. But then you get the other guys that maybe charge a little bit more, 150, $200 an hour and they come in and they make, they do incredibly good work. They, you know, they're happy to train uh, the developers in the company. They're happy to, um, answer any questions and solve any problems and do whatever it takes as long as the comp- that, that company is willing to engage them. So let me frame it in terms of not good versus bad consultants. What about if you, uh, your team's been hanging out in campfire and, and um, doing their thing there, or maybe IRC is a better example since we won't have Hubot as a counterexample. You've been hanging out in IRC, that's how your team communicates, and you decide, oh, I, I want to whip up a quick IRC bot for this channel that does some niceties for us. Is the product company or the firm that has you consulting more likely to say, 
Yeah, go ahead. Take a, take a few days and whip up a little IRC bot. <laughs> Maybe that frames it in different terms. I'd like to um, continue off of that a little bit. At product companies, I feel like I'm allowed to spend 10 hours experimenting some, with something that might make the product better. Whereas in, when I'm doing consulting work, that's just not an option. I have I have a goal. I'd have to I'd have to fight to to make those ten hours uh, immediately worth the cost to them. So th- this goes into another area, and this is this is important for people who are in a career somewhere or not. But you have to communicate, and in a lot of cases, if you're going to go and experiment with something for two or three hours to figure out whether or not it's going to pay off for the project that can wind up saving the client some money. And so, again, if you communicate well about what you want to experiment with, why you want to experiment with it, what the payoff could be for them, a lot of times they'll go for it. It's the same most thing Most of the time, in my experience, most of the time, uh, no. Yeah, I think you're oversimplifying there, Chuck. I mean, if you've got... If yeah. you've got a cash cow, a product, right, that exists and is bringing you in money, and one of your employees comes to you and says, I have this idea about this feature we could add, and... It's probably about 10 hours of work on my end, and I think it might do this, this, and this for us. If you're already comfortable in the position where you're making money, and this has the potential to improve the product, but neither one of you really know if it's going to take off. Is it going to be that feature that everybody loves and uses, or is it going to be that thing where one person uses it and it's totally not worth it to maintain it, or whatever? You don't really know, but it's not too hard to take that risk, right? You've got your money coming in, you're okay. Potentially, it may make the product better. If it doesn't, you know, you end up axing it down the road and it's not a super big deal. Whereas in the consulting firm, you know, where you're trying to push that product and get it there, and I say, I've got this good idea that's a maybe, I need about 10 hours side work. That's a much different scenario, right? That's pushing things back and slowing things down. It it really depends. I've had clients that take you up on it and clients that don't. But ultimately, if you at least communicate that and communicate the potential value of it, then then they can make a decision based on whatever criteria they have. Maybe we can try a, a, a slightly different tangent here. Um, okay. That you know. So my, my impression when Adam said he wanted to to come talk to us about this stuff was that uh, we were going to talk about like being a developer and what being a developer. You know, how being a developer is different if you're working in a company doing a long-term product development project or if you're running around as a hired gun consultant. And I, I'm curious, like, if there's actually differences that we, we've all seen, like how we approach writing code, you know, what the, what code quality is like, and, you know, if there's differences there. So one thing I noticed that I, that I thought was really great when I was consulting that I tried to carry through is that like Charles touched on, you really have to turn the communication up to 11. Uh, it's really easy, uh, especially in product teams, to uh, just go off in your cave and code, work tickets, fix bugs, write features, and never talk to anyone. And some people actually, people build careers on doing just that. He's the guy in the cave who just does uh, a bunch of good enough work, and we let him do that. But mostly people can't get away with that and have to talk to each other. And I found that I had to do that even more when I was consulting, and that helped me in my product work. That's a great point. 
Yeah, I, I think that uh, the um, approach to like responsibility and accountability that you take for your work as a consultant, it, it's, I think, a bit of a, parado- a paradox where or in some ways you're more accountable and more responsible for your work because it's like, you know, they're, this is what they're exactly what they're paying me to do. And this is my delivered work product. The other side of it is that like, if you're there at the company and you know, it, it's long term, it's like you have to live with it. You have to live with the results of it more so that you can be, uh, you know, it's, you know, the accountability is like, it follows you around more. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this is making sense, but uh, it seems like the, you know, what we're talking about is uh, basically, you know, the responsibility for writing, you know, good code and making sure we're doing the right thing. So putting a twist on that, are consultants and such more likely to do things like speak at conferences and form panel discussion podcasts because they've developed those skills necessary that that they have to work on those skills communication is more important to them or 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 self-marketing is more important (laughs) yeah right so i i can speak to this a little bit as far as the panel podcasts go obviously this podcast is mostly made up of consultants the javascript jabber podcast there is one consultant, the rest of them are all company guys. or the, Well, they're all guys, so I can say company guys. But they're, they're all developers that work for companies. Freelancer show, they're all freelancers. The, the iFreak show, I think we have two developers that work for dev shops. However, those dev shops, are um, they take contracts and work contracts. And then I've, we, watched, I've watched a little of the Food Fight show, the... The chef one, we had Nathan on, I think, mm-hmm. uh, a while back, and um, they talk a lot about chef, but most of those guys have uh, uh, steady jobs, uh, companies like Mozilla and, and um, uh, OpsCode and, and uh, various groups, so uh, I would say they're more product people. Yeah, and if you go and look at like This Week in Tech and, and those shows, I, I think it's a good mix there, too. So, so- I think... A lot of that is actually a second order effect. When I was a contractor, I could I had a lot more uh, agency over my time. So if I decided to take two hours off in the morning, uh, I had to I had to tell you know I had to ask permission from no one. Uh, whereas it's very easy when you're a company person to think that between nine and five, uh, if you're butts not in a company chair, then you're going to get a demerit, which is often not the case. But it was really hard for me to get myself out of that uh, train of thought. Yeah, I just want to second that. I really did not feel free to do a lot of the the stuff that I do now uh, until I became a consultant. Uh, You know, I I mean, I had I had some good jobs that, you know, were fine with me blogging from time to time. Um, I don't know if they knew how much of the blogging was done on company time. I think they did. And, you know, and a lot of it was stuff that I discovered on the job and they were okay with the exposure. But, but uh, yeah, a lot of the communication stuff, the education stuff, the conferences and podcasts and things like that, I really did not feel comfortable doing that while I was at a, you know, while I was full-time employed. Because it's, you know, the thing was, if I took two hours off to, to write a blog post or, you know, do a podcast or something like that, you know, while, while I was freelance, yes, I was losing money, but it was my money to lose. 
Uh, I could say, okay, I'm going to eat this time. Uh, whereas when I was full time, it felt more like it was, uh, you know, some, somebody else's money to lose. And uh, plus, full time work has a tendency to sort of expand and expand into all the nooks and crannies and become a lot more than full time. Yeah, so, that's a really good point. Let, let's talk about that for a minute. How how they tend to expand? Because I've seen I've seen freelance businesses do that too. Freelance does it in a different way. I mean, freelance, I haven't seen, I usually don't see the work itself expand out into more than full time. Um, but that's because you have all this sort of side stuff, business, you know, business stuff you have to take care of and marketing and, uh, you know, lead finding and stuff like that, that, that tends to ensure that you don't, that you actually wind up working less, fewer than 40 billable hours. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, some of that marketing and stuff is the fun, you know, the the fun, you know, writing a conference talk and stuff like that, that you otherwise would feel like, oh, I can't do this because I need to get that widget finished for my day job. That's a fair point. When I was doing consulting, I found that I could only do 30 billable hours a week or else I would be dead. But there was a lot more non-billable hours that were needed to keep things going to, you know, talk to people, find leads, promote myself, etc. And that's then a, that way, it expanded. That's a very good point. I, I hope everybody understands that. Like, if you work in an office, just because you punch that time clock in at 8 and you punch it out at 5, that doesn't mean you spent 40 hours sitting in front of a computer doing programming. I mean, like, you know... My brain, I think, last week I I did something like 44 hours of actually build programming time. And to me, that was way too much. (laughs) Like, it just, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, that mental stack you have to build up and keep it there. And I I mean, maybe if it was, if it was really simple programming, but this was kind of hard stuff. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't typically build. 40 hours, right? And that seems to be the difference. Like, as consultants, we are expected that if we build that hour, we were in the editor writing code, right? Whereas in the office, you know, you'll get up and take a break and go down and talk to the person down the hall for a little while and and uh, things like that. And we end up putting in about the same amount of programming hours, right? So I, I think it might be interesting to to talk a bit more about the pressures specifically on the development process, freelance versus full-time. What I'm thinking of... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say I have a pretty good example there, I think. So, and I suspect different people have had different experiences here. My experience is that I feel like full-time, it's a little easier to get into the rut of this is the way we've always done it. It's a little easier to get in the, to go down that road of technical debt where it's like, well, you know, we've, we've never had a a passing CI build. So we're not going to start now. (laughs) Why is it a big deal? You know, and this method has always, you know, had 13 conditionals in it. So what does a 14th matter? And I felt like as a consultant, I was mentally freer to bring in kind of a fresh perspective and a fresh energy to say, no, this, this really isn't good. Let's fix this and make it better. And I think, I think most people are familiar with having that energy at the beginning, you know, when they move to a new job 
and uh, you know it, they might be able to exercise it, or it might you know if it's if it's one of these places that has a, a really in, ingrained culture, they, it might be squashed quickly. But you know the nature of consulting is that you kind of get to bring that energy to new pro to the new projects over and over. Whereas you know when you're just at a at a day job every day for a couple of years, you stop even seeing the issues that are that have always been there and that nobody's you know had the energy to change yeah i think to me a lot of that is about culture and agency like products over time develop a culture like you said like we've never had a passing suite so why start now but then also like having a feel like you know having the feeling that you can take two hours off and do a podcast or uh, having the feeling that you can stop and say, hey, I'm not going to add another method to this God object. I'm going to, you know, delegate to some other object that I'm going to create today. I think those are more tied to the length of the project than, well, well so projects develop culture, not jobs, kind of. So a long-running, a long-running project like you would do uh, with product work is going to have these problems. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I personally have found that, and I, I confess I haven't done very much uh, product work, but I personally found that consulting-wise, things can change more often. Like uh, just recently in the job I'm working on, you know, we were going down X path, working on many things, and <laughs> then all of a sudden there was a medium opportunity for uh, the product we're working on. And then it was like, oh, if this product's going to get some media attention, then these X things we're working on right now are not the most important thing to have done at this particular time. So let's shift tracks and go work on this uh, user-facing stuff, basically, because, you know, the media event will have more users poking around with it and there's just a bunch of niceties that we could clean up and make nicer for them that would be good, whereas this infrastructure stuff can wait as we bring these new pieces online and stuff. And I find that I see that more, that, that you know, uh, we have to react to the outside forces that are happening more, I think. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think a lot of that depends on... You know, like who's leading the project and what, you know, what the product owner's philosophy is and just, it's like the, the culture you're embedded in. There's, there's always a bigger context, you know, no matter what level you're in. So I, I, I find it, uh, you know, while, while, you know, we can generalize about that stuff, I think the variations, uh, tend to dominate more than the generalizations. How's that for a generalization? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's saying, mostly right. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> in, physics, we, in physics, we used to say that uh, the, the error bars were very large. Points. <laughs> a, a very specific thing that I noticed when I, you know, when I shifted from doing you know, in-house product work to doing consulting. You know, I, was, I was at Pivotal for about four years and worked on a lot of different projects. And I, had a, I found that over time I developed a very different kind of attitude to how I was writing code. And one of the one of the things that was part of the culture at Pivotal was sort of the antithesis of the that um, what I mentioned before that you know consultants are infamous for like leaving a pile of unmaintainable crap behind when they leave the project, and 
the the culture at Pivotal was exactly the opposite of that. It was that it, when you work on a product at a company, it's you know going to be your job for years. There's a, I think a, a often a way to deal with technical debt is we don't have to think about how to solve this problem now because I'll be here in two or three years. And if someone has an issue with it, I'll just deal with it then. And so, so you can just infinitely defer stuff into the future. Whereas what we, you know, our attitude at, at Pivotal, and this is an attitude that I carry around with me now all the time is I'm writing code that I want someone who, you know, if they run across this code six months from now and I'm no longer on the project, the code should speak for itself. And, and, you know, therefore it should be easy to maintain even though I'm not around. So, and, and I found that that was just a really powerful perspective shift. And I find that, you know, when I myself go back and look at code that I wrote that way, you know, and, you know, it's a year later, I can deal with that code much more easily now. Yeah, that that's really kind of part of the point I was trying to make earlier with the, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, a good consultant, somebody you want to hire does. And, and it really is a terrific practice to have. Yeah. But, but I, I think that, that there is that, um, that sort of safety net or implied safety net when you're in a, in a big company, you're, you're, you know, you have, you know, quote, job security and are going to be there for a long time, or at least that's assumed that nobody pressure pressures you to make those kind of trade-offs in favor of maintainability. It's like, okay, well, yeah, we'll just deal with that when, when we run into that problem. Yeah. So. Uh, I've kind of seen it cut both ways, not really dependent on product versus consultants. Uh, I've seen really good code written, you know, like, like by consultants, like you're saying at Pivotal. Uh, I've seen really unrealistic code written by consultants. Uh, and I've seen, uh, just, ex- I like, I prefer to call it cutthroat code written by product people who are just, getting stuff done as fast as they can. And I've seen um, people who are working on a product, but have a sort of who've done resume driven development or who have a wrap for moving slower than the cutthroat people, but trying to write that good pivotal style or pivotal quality code that you're talking about, Josh. So that if, if, if anything, I don't think, that is a determinant of product versus consultant. Although I do think there's more cutthroats in product work, which would be interesting to come back to after Katrina says her thing. Actually, that's where I was going. I spent two and a half years at a startup where it's definitely, it was a product company. There was no doubt about that, but it wasn't making money. Mm-hmm. And so there was a really interesting dynamic. Um, it was not in Ruby. So there was also a very different culture in that in that sense. But um, it was very cutthroat. Everything was had to be done as quickly as possible. And usually for very like odd reasons, we were pleasing some random VC that was going to come into the office two days later and we had to have some feature that that person randomly wanted. Or there was a media thing that was going to happen. And so... And, and uh, the priorities were just shifting all the time and, and everything, um, because everything was an experiment, uh, m- most people didn't care about how durable or how readable or how maintainable anything was, which slowed us down um, tremendously, uh, very, very quickly. Do you feel like that's the reason why people are more cutthroat in product versus consulting? 
because they're more, uh, I don't want to say prone, but they're, you know, they're, they're more sensitive to that, uh, social pressure or business pressure from above versus consultants who, you know, are more independent and will just, you know, if, if you're not going to do this right, I'm gone. I don't know. I think that in this particular case, because they were burning cash and not making money, um, they had a lot of pressure from from sources that, like a company that is is cash positive, would not have. Yeah, I think that's true. I've even had consulting contracts I work on where you know the company is already making money, and so we're we're good there. You know, it's it's. Uh, you know, these are the, the next things they're working on. And, and that's definitely very different from, uh, you know, the company that, all right, here's how much money we've got before we run out of runway, <laughs> right? Here's an experiment. When you guys have worked on contracts or consulting, if someone on your team committed code that was uh, not valid Ruby code, like once or twice a week out of, you know, maybe 100 commits a week, uh, would that person stay around or would they be sent along, you know, fired or encouraged to stop doing that? Are, are, are they a consultant or are they a full-time employee? They work with you on the consultant side of the equation. If we fired people for that, I'd have been fired a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is I've seen... Um, I've worked at companies where people were writing bugs into the code, like explicit bugs, like Ruby would throw exceptions and barf all over the place and yuck, 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 you know, the VM was not happy with the code. And uh, those people kept their jobs. And I've, you know, I've seen consultants that do that once or maybe twice and they get let go. And, and I, I think uh, we can, we're kind of, I'm kind of heading toward job security here, but, uh, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think, I think uh, they are. These companies are less prone to fire somebody who's a full-time employee than a consultant, even for big mistakes. I just want to interject one thing, uh, and that is, I don't think there is such a thing as job security. Well, yeah. Well, so we can talk about this a little bit. I think I think you're generally correct. However, if you let a consultant go, there's no repercussions on the business. If you let a full-time employee go, you have to pay unemployment and you have to blah, 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 blah. And it's, it's a little bit more of a hassle, um, which is, I think, why they give them a little bit more leeway. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if the company can't afford to keep you, they'll let you go. If you, uh, you know, some companies, if you really are screwing up, they'll let you go. So. Well, and even though there's no real job security, because, you know, at least in at will states, you know, they can fire you anytime they want. There's a, I think, a big difference in attitude for I'm working on a contract that has, okay, I know this is a three-month contract, so I'm only going to be working on this three months versus I'm working at a full-time permanent position that, you know, well, basically I can stay in this job as long as we're both happy. Yeah. And so yeah, I, mean, I think, yeah, it's it's not like, no, I, I can never lose this job. It's that if... You know, if things go well, I can stay at this job as long as I want. So in game theory terms, it's the difference between the prisoner's dilemma and the iterated prisoner's dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) You may have to explain that. So in the prisoner's... Right? Go? No, I want to hear it. Yes. Uh, In the prisoner's dilemma, you have two players, and they can choose to 
cooperate or they can choose to defect. If both players cooperate, they get, say, three points. If both uh, players defect, they get one point each. However, if one of the players defects and the other cooperates, the defecting player gets five points called the temptation, and the uh, player who cooperates gets what is known as the sucker's payoff, which is zero points. So it is in, if, if you're playing the prisoner's dilemma, and you know that the other player is going to defect, it is in your best interest to defect. You both will get one point. Now, if you know that the other player is going to cooperate, it is in your best interest to defect because you're going to get five points and the other person is going to get zero points. In other words, it's always in your best interest, your own personal best interest to defect. However, if both players had cooperated, you would collectively do better. You'd get a mutual payoff that is higher. But this only holds if you know exactly how long you are playing, if you're playing one iteration or if you're playing a known number of iterations. If you are going to be playing against the same player over and over again and you don't know how often or how many times, if you defect, the other player can retaliate in the next round. And so the motivation changes and you will be more likely to cooperate um, if you don't know how long this is going to last. Genius. I love it. Interesting. Doesn't that kind of get into team building a little too? Are there interesting things about teams that you think you're going to work with for a short period of time versus teams you think you're going to work with for a long period of time? Absolutely. It, like if you, if you want to maximize the, the potential for cooperation, you want to, um, you want to have people interact more frequently um, and closer in the future. Like you don't want it to be a year off. You want it to be tomorrow or next week. Mm-hmm. Well, I, okay. So, so this got me thinking about technology choices too. Often people or, or you know, a company will hire consultants to come in and help them solve a particular problem. And sometimes that's a technical problem. Uh, very often they think it's a technical problem and you know, they want, recommendations about technology choices. Oh, should I use MySQL or Postgres or MongoDB? Uh, and I think some of the time when you're on, when you're like part of a permanent team, I use the word term permanent, uh, advisedly here, but, uh, yeah, when you're, when you're doing product work, you're on the, on the thing for the long haul, you can you can advocate technology choices because, you know, maybe you're an expert in it and you can stay around and you know own that piece of technology uh and you know but if you're a consultant and coming in and spending a couple months on the project and recommending a technology choice uh, at least i want to make sure that this is something that if i leave no one's going to be confused about how that works so like i would you know like if i were a haskell expert and coming into a team and saying oh yeah i'm just going to write this piece in haskell and then walk off and and you know no one even knows how it works so the, it, you know, yes, that's definitely a bad consultant thing to do. I'm not recommending, and I'm not saying that that's something consultants should be doing, but I'm saying that it changes how at least I think about the kind of technology choices that I make. That happens in product teams too. Well, uh, sure, I, I know, but I'm like wondering what if there's substantial differences between how that between how that works out, or or if you should be doing things differently, consulting versus product. So yeah. Th- anyway, sorry, sorry. Keep going. I think part of that gets to uh, risk. Like when you're doing product work, 
is how you measure risk and reward different from how you do it on uh, consulting work. That's an interesting thing. And the reason is, is because it seems like there are a lot of full-time jobs out there that are open. So when you're measuring risk, really, if you're in the mindset of, I'm going to work for a product company, you're, you're measuring as measuring it as, can I go find another full-time job? Um, whereas with consulting, it's really measured by how well you can sell your product, which is effectively your ability to write good code, um, to the next client. And so I think the risk is measured. It depends a whole lot more on you in both cases, but in the case of, uh, in the case of a consultant, it really boils down to a specific set of skills that isn't necessarily a technical set of skills. Yeah. Is the social set of skills is what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Where getting another job, yes, it does boil down some to that, but uh, it doesn't seem to be as critical because uh, they, the companies and individuals view consultants and employees differently, and so they, they measure the risk, risk differently as well. And so if they bring somebody in as an employee, then that just goes on payroll. Whereas if they're hiring a consultant, then that's an expense that they have to justify. So how about, how about this? Let's try taking it in one more direction before we, uh, we say we've exhausted beating this up. Adam, what things do you think consultants do regularly that have no place on the product team or vice versa? Or what things do, does one side do all the time that you think would be great to infect the other side or whatever? That is a good question. One of the thing, one of the things I'm really interested in is um, a distinction between iteration and long-term thinking and long-term architecture and design. And, I think that product teams are probably a little better at iteration or skilled at iteration and solving problems through iteration. And consultants are maybe a little better at longer term thinking or like let's introduce thinking in terms of let's introduce a new component that will solve these three problems. Does that make sense? Maybe. I'm trying to just. De- I'm trying to decide if I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> well, so uh, yeah, could you could you iterate that argument? <laughs> the original question was: Is there something that one side should be doing that the other is is not doing? Right. Yeah, or, or is or, there no or, or is there no place or is there no place for something on the other side? Right. Um. So I think. Everybody should be turning their communication up to 11. I am in 100% agreement with that, yeah. I I think it's actually like the killer skill of a programmer. Well, on on a scale from 1 to 10, don't you mean 110% in agreement? (laughs) Thank you. uh, When people ask me what I like about my job, I say, oh, because it's a people job. Yeah, that's right. Uh, right, software turns out to be more about people than it is about code. Right, you you eventually figure that out, hopefully. Yeah, which and, I and, find and, terribly frustrating. Actually. <laughs> 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 uh, on both sides of the coin that we're talking about here, both in the product area and consulting area, it's a, it it really is about people. Well, I mean, most of the problems that we have in software is 
miscommunicated requirements. So the, mm -hmm. the more that you can communicate well and effectively, the fewer problems you have in your project. Glenn Vanderberg pointed out to me that most projects that fail do so because of social reasons, because of people reasons, and not because of technical reasons. And sometimes that's miscommunication, you know, it's requirements that weren't understood. But oftentimes it's, and especially in product teams, it's longer term things where you have clicks that aren't interacting uh, with each other properly. Uh, or just people who aren't interacting with each other properly, uh, people not telling each other important things. Yeah, people. Can't so live that, with them. Can't live without them. That's a good point. People, right? Um, I, I think that's why I was hesitating earlier is I wonder if, you know, if you're a good consultant and the best consultant you can be, then I think you're still planning for the future in a similar way that hopefully product people are planning for the future. And if you're a good product company, I hope you're still remembering to adjust to changes and, and, and pivot and stuff like the good consultants do when things happen, right? I think there's, like, I think if you're the best you can be at those things, then hopefully you're bringing those things to the table from either side. Am I crazy there in thinking that? So one of the things I thought would be the big point of contention um, when we talked about this was that consult so consulting work is a business, right? And you agree up front that I'm going to implement X or Y for you. A lot of the time it's a fixed contract. And Cucumber is a tool for fixed contracts. Cucumber is basically a tool where you get together with the customer, they write some stuff, you write some code that makes things turn green. And once everything is green, you can get paid. And that is, and so that was, so thinking along those lines had me thinking, oh, well, consultants are much less agile, low, lowercase agile in that respect. And that they're like, okay, I need to just get this thing done so I can get paid and move along. Maybe, you know, I'll write the best code of my life, but my goal is to get all these cucumber tests green and then finish. Whereas a product team would be like, oh, well, those cucumber tests are stupid. Well, first of all, product teams, I find, usually don't need cucumber. And second of all, product teams will be like, oh, well, those tests or those assumptions are all wrong now or we found out they're stupid, so we're going to do something else. That's interesting because I would almost put it the other way around. Like, uh, so first of all, I'm a consultant and I freaking hate cucumber for starters. And second is like in the consulting thing where we're, we're doing our thing. I feel like because we do things agile and iteratively, not necessarily because I see it as if I get these to turn green, I get paid. In fact, that almost seems silly. I mean, wouldn't my ultimate goal of solving the cash flow problem be how many weeks can I get these people to keep me on board to pay me for the maximum amount before I have to go do those non-billable hours to get new clients? So I'm not trying to do it that way. I'm trying to do it because people always have this grand vision and it's, yeah, given 500 programmers an infinite time, we'll go build that. But since you don't have that, we have to be realistic, and, and what we're trying to do is limit scope.
to a manageable scale, in my opinion. And so then we have to make those choices and react, I feel like, more agilely and say, yeah, that doesn't apply, so we're shifting this way. That would be my response to that. So there's James Consulting and there's like Deloitte Consulting, right? Like Deloitte (laughs) is just trying to milk, in many cases, like say company X that is a contractor for the CIA. Like they're just trying to get the CIA to put as, to spend as much money as possible, right? And say, okay, we did this thing, pay us. We did this other thing, pay us. So it could be that we're talking less about the differences between product and consulting and more the differences between business models. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I buy that. I mean, I think Katrina hit on a good point of funded versus non-funded or things like that. You know, there's many axes at play here, you know, and as far as how people make their decisions and what their ultimate aims are. But I think we also have to be careful not to straw man the other side, right? And and assume the best possible case of consultant doing the best they can and the best possible case of product company doing the best they can. Yeah, well, and it's it's interesting because usually when I talk to people, you know, it comes from a place of this has been my experience working for companies and this has been my experience working for myself. And I find that talking to a lot of other consultants, it's, it's a lot the same. And so, uh, you know, there were certain things that really worked out well that they liked working for a company and there were certain things that they found unacceptable. And so for one reason or another, they wound up, you know, moving into consulting. And- yeah, I, I think that, um, there, there's like a different axis to look at things on there and that's, um, so, yeah, and Adam talked about this b- before too. In in terms of, I think he's the the term agency. And you know, when I've been an independent consultant, and I was my I was literally my own boss, right? You know, I you know, there, there was nobody I reported to. I I had to serve my my clients as my customers, but I was my own boss, and that's like a really easy way for developers to become their own boss. It's a lot easier than going out and founding a startup company and raising funding and, and doing all that rigmarole. So if there's, you know, there's a certain type of, of person, you know, like, you know, it's actually many people, it's not uncommon who don't like working for somebody else and they, and they want to be their own boss and make their own decisions about, you know, what they're going to work on and, you know, how they want to, you know, have their own philosophy about how they solve problems, all that stuff. And it's just, it's so easy to just go freelance and be your own boss. I mean, I'm not saying there's not challenges there, but it's so much easier to make that happen than like founding a big, founding a whole company so that you can work for yourself. And, and I love that part of being a consultant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a- like, just like I love that part of running a startup company. Yeah. So. There's there's always the flip side though, and that is is if you're on your if you are your own boss, you have to do your boss's job too. So well, well, sure. I, I'm not saying there's no downside to that. Yeah. But I'm saying that that's if you want to be your own boss, that's a really easy avenue to get into it. But the other thing is, if you're one of those people who doesn't want to deal with all that business stuff, like James, then there's ways to do that as either working for a company on product or working as a consultant. You know, you could go work for Pivotal and let them take care of all the business mm-hmm. for you. Yep. So, yeah. so I wanted to take on one more straw man. All right, let's do it. Light so on uh, fire. One, of, one of the uh, reasons I brought this notion of product versus consulting up with James was that 
sometimes I notice people who write blogs and uh, sometimes on this podcast, like an, uh, an assumption that everyone is refact or that everyone can be refactoring or wants to always be refactoring and TDDing and whatnot. So there's a straw man of uh, the Ruby Rogues cohort, right? You're not you're not straw manning this time. I really believe that. So I kind of I th- I've noticed that there's an a core not kind of the opposite kind of developer who is also very valuable. Like for every rogue on the team, I want this other kind of developer who I've started calling a grinder. Um, and this is a person who is not up to date on all of the TDD and mocking and and distributed systems and whatnot, but they know enough Ruby and they know enough Rails to get uh, to get work done and just blow through features, respond really well to deadlines. They they basically get a lot done, but they're terrifying to someone to someone on the other end of the fence, on the other side of the fence because they don't write tests. They work very fast. They deploy very often, and often they deploy broken or syntactically invalid code. But they do it fast enough that unless it's like, you know, in the part of the system that launches nuclear missiles or accepts payments, you don't really notice. And those sorts of people are really, really valuable. And uh, I kind of wondered if those sorts of people end up in consulting jobs ever or if they're only ever in product companies, because I've noticed them in several product companies. So yeah, there's there's the opposite straw man. Discuss. I find that grinders tend to be very productive at the expense of the rest of the team. So the rest of the team doesn't look productive because they are spending a lot of time cleaning up after the grinder. So true. I've I've seen <laughs> I've I've seen grinders be net negative producers more than once because exa- exactly that the rest of the team the rest of the team and the it, the team isn't isn't dealing with the 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 problem that the grinder just caused a lot of the time a lot of times they're they're dealing with the problem the grinder caused a year ago you know this massive massive monolith of code that they churned out in an in an insane marathon session and you know while nobody was was looking over their shoulder at all and it's in it then the the team spends the rest of the team spends months untangling it and with management saying why are you guys so uh, you know why are you developers so slow i have to say the only way i've seen this actually work where you have a grinder or two on your team is if you can put up a few fences and get them to mind the fences and so basically you put up the ci and it's unacceptable for the ci to go red and it won't deploy if the ci is red um things like that so they and- delete tests <laughs> yeah. So exactly. I'm not talking about a cowboy coder. I'm talking about something like a cowboy coder, but a little different. Like a cowboy coder just doesn't care. They're like, if I finish this feature, I get my bonus. I get my BMW. Life is good. So I don't care about your TDD. I don't care about your CI. So that this is different. This is someone who means well, but maybe doesn't necessarily understand the benefits. So when I talk to grinders and I say, hey, you should write a test for that. They're like, oh, I tried to, but you know, it has to talk to uh, this web service and it's going to always return a different thing. So I didn't know how to, so I didn't. And so I was like, oh, well, you should use VCR and only uh, stub the classes, mock and stub classes that you own. And then they just look at me with glass eyes. 
And it's really hard for me to explain to them all these things that are second nature to us. So they mean, they mean well, but it's just like we can't communicate about code at nearly the same high level. But they're still extremely valuable to the team. If you tell me that I have to finish this feature by tomorrow, I completely panic and don't, and can't think rationally. But there, but a grinder is just like, okay, I'll cut some, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll cut some corners or maybe I'll just type this out. But, I would uh, still posit that, that their productivity comes at the expense of the rest of the team. Yeah. Eventually somebody else is going to have to go pay that technical debt. Sometimes that grinder is good enough that what they contribute is worth the, the negative impact they have on the rest of the team. Being able to tell when that's the case is really hard. Fair point. Yeah. Well, I think there are, I think there are some programmers out there. I'm not sure what a good, I need to come up with a good name for them, but they are just really, really, really good. And, you know, they're, they breathe the code and they, particularly they are the rare, the rare programmer who is capable of holding the entire very large program in their head at once. And, you know, I am not one of them. I, I've always said I'm a programmer of very little brain. The, uh, but, you know, there are these co- coders out there that just re- can do a really good job really fast because they can hold the, the whole program in their, in their heads. And, um, you know, and they, they really can be, uh, a benefit to the team. Unfortunately, there are a lot more programmers out there who think they are that programmer and they are not. <laughs> so I think Charles had a, he, he cut to the thing that I think is the trick here. And that's to give, give the non rogues a system in which they can work. They're like a a fenced off area in which they can do whatever they need to do to get, user visible features out the door quickly and iterate on them quickly while maintaining the stability of the core system. But I'm still curious if you guys uh, have run into, if, if these sorts of people turn up in build shops like ThoughtBot or uh, Pivotal, or if you see them about in the consulting community, or if it's just in the product world. I, I, ha- I have run into at least one in the consulting world who was doing consulting and, and we both just ended up working on the same project. Um, so I, I've definitely seen one that way. And I'll, I'll reiterate pretty much what everyone has said, that that person was effective. They built lots of features very fast. They can make changes and stuff like that. At, at the same time, there came a point when I had to go in there and touch that code and then... That was hard because, first of all, I had to spend a big amount of effort to understand it because I didn't have anything like tests or anything to guide me. And second of all, you know, when I needed to make changes on it, I was just super afraid. You know, if I pull on this string, what else do I tug at? You know, and and I just didn't have any kind of insurance and stuff like that. So I, I worry about the net overall gain. But, yeah, I see... I see what you're saying, you know, can we give them just this project and say, you work on this project and that's your baby, but is that last forever? I mean, in my experience, one person working on one project forever and software, I don't see that very often at all. So, well, in consulting, I've seen a few as well. Usually they fall into one of two categories in my experience. One is they're kind of the cowboy coder, and we talked a little bit about that, so they don't really care. 
They just want to push something up, and as long as the client doesn't scream bloody murder, then they get paid. The other kind that I've seen is they usually work with somebody that's at that higher level that you're talking about, and and that's the person that can check them. So they'll they'll come in and they'll say, "Dude, you got the you know you got the feature basically working, but you know this here and this here and this other thing are unacceptable." So it's interesting where they wind up, but yeah, I, I feel like most consultants are more along the lines of the the high level people. I want to say that I've run into the. I, I think I've run into them as consultants as well. Maybe uh, I think usually as like the cut rate consultant, uh, you know that that comes in and charges half what other people do, and so so they get hired and they and you know they just get the the boss just keeps throwing work at them and and they just keep working late nights and, and getting it done. Which brings me to one other thing I wanted to say about the the grinder, as it were. I I also feel like they get kind of abused by companies whether whether as as consultants probably more commonly in full-time positions i feel like they get kind of um pigeonholed and, and abused a bit because that's the you know some some boss at the company finds out that they can you know that they can go around the team and go to this grinder and say can you get this done for me you know this this special feature that'll that'll wow you know some investor or something and then they keep, you know, and, and the grinder will do it and they'll stay up all night doing it and they keep doing this. And there's almost a negative incentive to, you know, for the business or at least for, for the boss that takes advantage of this to socialize that grinder, so to speak, you know, to, to kind of bring them in, in you know, and maybe, maybe, maybe they don't, you know, they don't want to be that person or maybe they just haven't really thought of there being another way of doing things i mean i've 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 talked to many programmers who worked for years and years as a programmer before they had a like you know an awakening moment when they realized that they wanted to do it that you know it could be a craft rather than just a grind and that was a huge deal for them but they you know spent years as a grinder and i feel like there's this there's this incentive in business to keep the grinders as grinders and keep them down and keep pay, paying them crap and you know just relying on the fact that they will work their fingers to the bone to, you know, without, without complaining. Yeah. I've noticed that grinders are really bad at life balance as well. Uh, but sometimes they're known secret weapons, like, uh, several of the ones I've worked with, like management knew that this guy was your skunk works project guy when there was a short deadline or when everything was crumbling. Uh, they have a pretty strong sense of duty. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think we've pretty well exhausted uh, most of the points that we can make about this. There is a whole other podcast that I do about freelancing, and that's over at freelancershow.com. Let's go ahead and get into the picks. Uh, James, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I've got three quick ones that are all related, uh, and it's all about Cherubi today. I used RVM for a long time, and I like RVM, and I'm glad that it exists and I appreciate all the efforts that have gone into it, but it's kind of gone in some directions that I, I haven't liked as much, uh, and and just I, I wanted to try something new uh, and lighter and smaller. Um, so Cheruby has a very different idea of how we should do uh, Ruby switching. Um, so I'll link to a good blog post that kind of explains the differences on why they're important. Uh, and then just uh, Cheruby itself, it's super easy to install, uh, if you're a homebrew user, you can just, you know, brew install Cheruby. 
And then uh, Cheruby just does the switching. Basically, you install Ruby in directories, and uh, it sets up the environment such that it, you'll be using that Ruby at a particular time. So you will also need a tool to uh, install Ruby into directories. And some people use Ruby Build, I think, which comes out of the Ruby RBM or, or RBM project, uh, and I have no experience with that and can't speak to it. Uh, but the creator of Cheruby also has a project called Ruby Install, which just does that, installs Rubies into uh, directories. And so I switched over to these um, a couple months back now, and um, I've been using it and loving it. I deployed a server this weekend and tried uh, Cheruby in the deploy for the first time, and that was great too. So really liking it, and if you want to see kind of some small, simple Ruby switching with without a lot of fuss, I think Ruby is worth a look. Hey, hey James, I, I got a follow-up question for that. Um, the, I noticed that RVM has like a mini RVM uh, version of the project that is meant only to install Rubies, not to switch them. And, and uh, the RVM site recommends that as one potential way to handle installing Rubies that you can then switch with Cheruby. And I'm, I'm curious if you checked that out or like evaluated that versus those other options you talked about. I didn't know. I, I, I didn't know it existed until just now. So I don't know. That's another option. I do know a lot of people use Ruby build from RBM. So uh, Ruby definitely doesn't care. Like if okay. you just install Ruby in a directory, that's really all it needs uh, as far as it's switching. So you you're totally free to try uh, you know, the, the Ruby uh, mini RVM installer thingy you just mentioned or mm-hmm. uh, Ruby build or whatever. Uh, this Ruby install, though, I got to say, it's pretty great. I mean, like, you just say which version of Ruby one. It manages the dependencies, even installing things from Homebrew if it needs to. It was, I really thought it was cool just right out of the box. So I, I think it's worth a look. But, um, but yeah, you can use any installer you want. You can build them by hand. Nice. Avdi, what are your picks? All right, let me quickly burn through a, few, a little bit of my backlog here. First of all, uh, for years, I went through like a router, a Wi-Fi router a year. It seemed like they would just they would just peter out and stop accepting connections after a while. I don't know why this, these pieces of hardware degrade faster than any other kind of hardware I have, considering that they're solid state. But whatever. Anyway. Uh, I asked around, and I read the wire cutter like recommendation, and I asked around, and they they all kind of agreed that the uh, the Asus RTN66U, otherwise known as the Dark Knight router, was uh, the one to get. So I picked one up. It's it's not the cheapest router. It's like I don't know, 150 bucks or something. But I have not had any trouble with it since. It's been several months, and everything in the house connects to it, and it has great range. And I'm finally not cursing at my router and having to reset it every day. So next up, the other day, I needed to find out what the heck font somebody had used in some art that they did for me. And uh, I used a tool called What the Font. And you can basically give it an image. You can give it a little bit of assistance in finding the, the glyphs in the image. And, and it will try to identify what font they are. And it totally worked. So that's pretty cool. And I will also say that you have to go and watch a video series called Ruby Ramen. Uh, uh, is awesome. Nice. Okay, that's off. 
All right, Josh, what are your picks? Okay, I have an oldie but goodie that I'm going to start with, and that's uh, so. So we had um, Tom Tom Stewart on, and we're talking about uh, cellular automata as part of the understanding computation book we were reading, and I f- I found a. Um, I guess a relatively old webpage uh, when I was uh, reading the book and uh, poking around and looking for stuff. And it's all about uh, doing the game of life in 140 characters in a tweet. And the uh, blog post is by Phil Trelford. Yeah. Uh, Started off with the game of life in Ruby in 140 characters in a tweet. So (laughs) uh, I, I just found it really awesome. (laughs) So, uh, so that's a little mind bending. Uh, and what else do I got here? Um, oh, I, so, uh, congregate, you know, I still play games on congregate. Uh, you know, I've been a, I was an early adopter there. I still play games on there. I found this amazing little game, which is, uh, basically, uh, you debate the great philosophers of the ages, uh, to discover the meaning of life. <laughs> <laughs> or the or the the basis of morality, I guess, is what it is. So it's a it's a Socrates Jones pro philosopher, and I it was um it was actually super educational, and there was a lot of stuff that I sort of knew about philosophy that this helped uh, helped me get a actually more uh, reasonable view of things. So uh, it's you know it's not a real quick play, but but it's pretty fun. I liked it. And then uh, my last pick is, the, uh, you know, data is awesome, is basically how I'm characterizing this. Uh, Wired.com had a, a posting uh, last week about, that took um, processing census data from the most recent census and turned every individual into a single pixel on a map of whatever area you're in, colored by their race. So it's you look at these maps, and it's completely apparent racial segregation by geography, you know, and they have all the big cities of, of, of the U S and all the regions. And it's just amazing. Go find your city in it and take a look at it and you will be surprised or maybe you will be confirmed. (laughs) Okay. So, so uh, that's it for me. Awesome. Katrina, what are your picks? I have no picks. All right. Well, I've got a couple. Uh, the first pick is a blog post by this guy I know named David Brady. It was uh, loyalty and layoffs. I really identified with it. Of course, I know most of the circumstances behind why he wrote it, and uh, it was it was really really interesting. So, uh, if you're in a full time job or not, um, you go read it and and just it, it talks about company loyalty and and how it works and why it doesn't make sense. Um, at the same time. You know, it did make me think about you know what do you owe the company and and so um I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what people think about that um, and you're welcome to email me or tweet me or whatever and let me know what you think. Um, that is a fantastic post. It it really was. I don't think I have any other picks right now, so uh, I'll hand it off to Adam. What are your picks? Um, so my pick is a website called Grantland. It's uh, an ESPN spinoff. It's kind of sports and pop culture for people who like to read longer things, who like analysis. And so uh, they tend to cover in-depth about sports, like they run a bunch of things on uh, NFL play calling, uh, which I find intriguing. But also they have uh, recaps of shows like Breaking Bad or Mad Men, 
and they also and then they also do uh right now they're doing a pop culture thing where they have a uh best songs of the millennium uh in a bracket format so like hit me baby one more time versus uh uh 99 problems uh who wins and then they will by bracket format determine what is the best song in the past uh 10 years um so that's really cool uh and a spin off for that i am ready for professional NFL football. Uh, and that's it. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, before we do, I want to just kind of announce and remind people of our next book club. We're going to be reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. Um, it took us a little bit. By of- who? Avdi Grimm. It, it, he, <laughs> he was a real pain to book onto the podcast. but Describe, uh, it. Describe him for me. Well, we, t- we talked to his assistant. That That's almost all I know about him. Um, she she said he would do it. Yeah, she said he would do it. Um, we're going to be reading it, or we will be. I'm going to have to it. talk to her. <laughs> <laughs> we'll re- be reviewing it on October 16th, so uh, that's plenty of time to read it. So go pick it up. And yeah. he gave a discount code. He did. I did. Didn't he? Yes. Oh, I he's did. here. <laughs> <laughs> it is Rogues Club, all one word, all caps. Awesome. All right. So. Anyway, um, we're really excited. Several of us have already read it, and it's an excellent book, so we're looking forward to talking about it. All right, well, that's sounds like that's all we've got, so we'll wrap it up. We'll catch you all next week.